Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms of preteens, teens, and young adults. My mission is to first and foremost support and encourage you, mom, so that you can live well and reclaim your life. Two, this show will help you have the best possible relationships with your teens so that you can communicate, motivate, and guide them effectively and actually enjoy them. And third, I will bring you top-notch guests who will share the newest in adolescent research and trends so you can be prepared and aware of what your teens are facing today. Always you will leave each episode armed with practical parenting tips. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the 218th episode of Power Your Parenting, Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. Do you think it's possible to parent teens without anger? Our guest today, Renee Mill, is a senior clinical psychologist, author, and corporate speaker who is passionate about helping people overcome anxiety and stress. With over 20 years of experience, she has become a leading expert in the field of mental health and emotional intelligence. Renee is the author of three best-selling books, including anxiety-free, drug-free, parenting without anger, and no-sweat parenting. Her work has been featured on various media outlets, including The Today Show, Sunrise, and The Morning Show. In this episode, Renee challenges the idea that anger is a necessary part of parenting. She also talks about the six beliefs that stir rage. She also talks about her approach to treating anxiety without medication and how it differs from traditional methods. She gives us several cognitive and behavioral tools to help 
Individuals Overcome Anxiety and Stress. Welcome, Renee Mill. Hi, Colleen. So the first question I ask all my guests is if you're a mom, and if so, what are the ages of your kids? Yes, I'm privileged to be a mom of four children, three girls and a boy. They're all adults now. So the oldest is 40 and the youngest is 30. But I also have grandchildren. I have nine grandchildren, and they're starting to go into their teens. So I have a different perspective. But I have lived experience of four teenagers. Haven't forgotten. (laughs) Yes, we will never forget. (laughs) And so you live in Sydney, Australia. That's right. That's great. And I do have lots of listeners who are in Australia. So this is great. All right. So we have a lot of things, I think, in common. I'm trying to dial down the drama. And you wrote a book called Parenting Without Anger. And I totally agree with that. So you say that that challenges the idea that anger is a necessary part of parenting. Can you explain how parents can effectively discipline their children? without resorting to anger? Well, let me give a little bit of a background how I even began writing my first, which is called No Sweet Parenting and is Debunking Six Myths, is what I found is that parents used to drop off their kids or their teenagers and say, fix them. And it's not so simple because parents, obviously children are part of a system. But what I also found is sometimes I would give advice to parents, which sometimes I thought was brilliant even, And then they would come back and nothing had changed because the underlying belief. So, for example, many parents will tell me the only thing that works is anger. They will tell me I asked nicely once or twice and only when I shouted or I took away the phone or I grounded them, then I had a result. So I might be talking about collaborative parenting and I know in their heads they go, it's not going to work, only anger works. So... Very, very important to understand that before we get into parenting strategies, we need to understand what motivates us to be angry. And this is a CBT approach that what we think then leads to the feeling of anger or anxiety or any other feeling. So I work a lot with the thoughts of parents or children. If adolescents are angry, the same idea. It's not about saying, well, just listen to your mom. It's about what are you thinking that's making you angry all the time? Mm-hmm. That's great. Yes. I mean, I remember I used to work in a clinic for University of Texas in the psychiatry department, and we did a lot of group training, group supervision, and talking to a mom who I was talking about, you know, to not yell. And she was like, then what's the point? So, what is the point? Ah, this is another thing that I work a lot with parents is what are your goals of parenting? Is it just to turn children into, which you can't, into little robots or running your house like a military academy? And a big part of good parenting, I believe that parents are the primary educators of children. We educate children how to live productive lives, how to be givers, how to be decent human beings. We need to teach them all those things. So One of the points of not yelling is that children don't hear when we yell. None of us do. If someone yells at us, we set up a defense mechanism. We actually can't hear the message. But the other thing is we also know that some people have actually called yelling a form of verbal abuse. So children, it's actually if there's chronic yelling, and especially if the content of the yelling is attacking the child's character, and again, vice versa, teenagers can do this to their moms as well. 
it actually wears you down and affects your self-esteem, can affect your mood. So the point is not only to build your children, but actually to create a cooperative place that you can live together. Yes. So this podcast is called Power Your Parenting. So I always have to kind of describe what power is. So I think for the parents who yell and scream, they feel like that's a way of being powerful so that they can get their kids under control. But I know that you probably believe that when we lose control and we get that angry that we're out of control, that we really have lost power. True. There's a fantastic scene. I don't know if any of your listeners have even watched the movie. Schindler's List, that's a movie of the 90s, but there's a fantastic scene where this Nazi is about to shoot somebody. They're bullying him and about to shoot him, and then he doesn't. And someone else said, not shooting, that's actually more powerful. It took more courage and more self-discipline not to shoot. And it's the same thing. When we lose it, as you say, we lose our control of ourselves. And we don't say, in America, they call anger, they say, I was so mad at you. We don't use that expression here. But you're mad, you lose control, you're irrational. So being rational, being self-disciplined, build self-respect, but also there's power in that. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, my children used to tell me that when I would quietly say, please come into the room, I'd like to talk to you, their hearts would sink and they would hate <laughs> them more <laughs> than when I would yell. <laughs> They didn't have the meetings and the talks. Right. Much more powerful. Yes. I tell my moms that your clarity is your power, you know, is is when you're clear. Because a lot of times when I talk to moms, I talk about that we vent. And venting is where we're just saying anything that's in our head. So it's feelings. At five, you did this. And 12, and how could you do this to me? It's just all over the map. And we're out of control, but that's not clarity. So with your CBT approach, and you're looking at the thoughts that cause the anger, can you tell me what are some of the beliefs that stir rage? I think you had six beliefs. Yes. Okay, so one of the most common is it's personal. It's about me. If you love me, you would not leave that mess on the floor. If you respected me, you would keep the curfew that I set. And the most popular one is you just know how to push my back. Mm-hmm. So it's that personal thing. And I always joke with parents, it's like as a mom, do you think your child wakes up and goes, mm, which button should I push today? Oh, the one on mom's right shoulder, that should get her upset, the laundry on the floor. So that one about being personal is a big one. Yes. That, um parents that parents feel and then you get angry because you are disrespecting me and you are not loving me and you are treating me badly so that's one of the most common another one is the feeling that it's always going to be like this we call it permanent pervasive thinking it's like when your child's in a particular phase when is this going to end you know they're never going to listen to me so when you think a child never is going to listen and it's always going to be like this and then it's much harder. I say it's like toothache. You know, if you go to the dentist and he tells you it's going to be painful for three minutes, you can manage. But if he says, look, it's going to be painful, I don't know when it will end. Mm-hmm. It could be months, could be years. The pain gets worse. 
yes. we often don't realize that this behavior is temporary or that the situation is temporary and we can get through this together. So when we think it's always going to be like this, then it's all just too much. Or the other way we do it is you never make your bed. So what I'll do is the evidence. Do they never, ever, ever make their bed? Or do they not make their bed during vacation? And once you start actually looking at the evidence, it's not as bad. Whereas, so you think someone never listens or never makes their bed and so on. Mm-hmm. The third one is what we call pervasive pessimistic thinking, where you think everything about the child is wrong. So they don't make their bed. And then you think this child is a failure. I've had some people say, no one's ever going to want to marry my child. You know, they're such a loser. It's like a generalized feeling that everything's wrong when all they did is not make their bed or they're mm-hmm. failing one subject at school. So the antidote for that is to actually do what we look at the total view. They actually have this part of them, but they also have this part of them. They do have the not making the bed part, but it doesn't mean they're a total failure. And this is where CBT is very important. It's about looking at the evidence. Is what you're telling yourself really true? Then there's the one which only happens to me. So I'll often have people go, you know, my daughter, she's the rudest person. I look at Mary next door. Her daughter's just divine. She does everything she asks. <laughs> and people compare all the time and they will tell you everyone else's children are succeeding and doing beautifully and respectful and my daughter does it. Right. So that idea that it's only me adds to it as well. It's quite a serious one. Mm-hmm. Another one is, which links very much to this, is what we call romantic thinking. So I know that I was like this. I went to yoga before I gave birth to my first child. I thought I'm just going to squat the baby out beautifully, <laughs> like in the paddy field. And, you know, she was going to sleep through the night. My oldest is a girl, sleep through the night and do all the things, be respectful and do well at school. And why shouldn't she? You know, we have these romantic ideals. And as we all know, not every child fits those ideals. And we have to deal with what's called realism. This child is struggling or this child is impulsive and I don't get on that well. Or this child has anxiety. Particularly if a child is very different to us, it's sometimes very difficult to engage with that child and very disappointing. So we're walking around going, oh, why can't you be different? Why can't you be like me? I make my bed every day, don't I? When I was at school, I did my homework. Like, what's so difficult? So that's another one Mm -hmm. that causes anger. And then the last one, which I think is getting worse because of our society, is what I call the woe is me. Mm -hmm. The self-piteous, black thinking, life is so hard. People talk like this all the time. Life is so difficult. The world is such a mess. Mm-hmm. My life is so hard. I was dumped with these children. So these are the classic six thoughts. And if you're walking around with one or more of them, you'll be angry with the child. You're making my life miserable. Mm-hmm. I didn't sign up for this. Mm-hmm. These are the kind of things that moms tell themselves or dads as well, parents. And then we feel angry because we want the child to change. And that's the other myth. If I'm angry enough, you will give me what I want. If mm-hmm. I yell enough, you will become the person I want you to be. Mm-hmm. So let's say a mom comes in and she is one of those that was the romantic, maybe perfectionistic kind of mom. And she's not being realistic. So how would you get her to realize that? 
Well, when I work with people, there are two parts. The one is obviously look at why they're bringing it in and is it only with this child or is it other areas? And then with some psychoeducation, as I was saying, talking about this is how you're thinking and the classic CBT is how to challenge that. So I have what I do differently with regular CBT, people have to come up with their own challenging thoughts. I've developed tools. So for each of those thoughts, I have a tool. So when someone says, she's always going to be like this, the tool is temporary. This too shall pass. Development is phasic, not basic. So this child will move through this phase. And what does this phase look like? And what will the next phase look like? So you present a different way of looking at it for the person. With pervasive pessimistic thinking, the tool is total view. So let's look at your child as a whole. What are all the things your child is and which are the parts that you're struggling with? But the idea is it's not a gray in between. It's holding both. There's all these good or average things. It doesn't have to be wonderful. But your child is much more than this one thing that you are pervasively contaminating your view. So that's what we'll do. We find tools for them. But the other thing that I really want to stress is it's never a one-soft thing. In order to change our brains as parents, we need to, because if we've had years of thinking, poor me, or years of thinking, if my life doesn't go the way I want, you know, I'm a victim or I'm upset, one actually needs to rewire the brain by practicing these new thoughts. Mm-hmm. That's very helpful. And, yeah, and then it's about what you were talking about, clarity is helping a parent to value what they bring, what's important for them as a good parent. And we all want to be good, loving moms. I have no doubt that everybody does. To do that, you need to work on your anger and you need to change that. But then everybody thrives. You'll feel better about yourself, but your child will thrive. Mm -hmm. Now, that's really great. Can you tell us about your approach to treating anxiety without medication and how it differs from traditional methods? So this is a good segue to what I was just saying. So I don't know if everybody knows. So as I told you, I was originally analytically trained. And that was all about going into the past and seeing people a few times a week. And it was digging deep. But the truth was that sometimes people could come for years and their behaviors didn't change. Sometimes they did, but very often not. Then in the 80s, when CBT became you know, popular, I'm actually originally an occupational therapist. So there's that very practical side of me where in the 70s, we used to literally drag people out of the bed and take them to workshops. So I really appreciated the behavior side of CBT. And when I was working with traditional CBT methods, as I said a few minutes ago, you would say, okay, now we've identified what's making you anxious is the feeling that the world is a, is a scary place and, you know, everything sucks and it's difficult. And that it's a thought that's making you anxious. And what classic CBT is asking people to find an alternate thought. And I found that people couldn't because they stuck in the way they see the world. And we now can describe it in terms of the brain that you have a neural pathway that keeps thinking the same thing. And the Hevian principle says the more you think it, when neurons that fire together, wire together, the more it becomes glued in. So when you say to someone as a one-sort, don't worry about it, it'll pass, doesn't change their brain. The next morning they wake up and they still worry about it. So based on neurobiology, I've put together a four-step system where people, when they feel anxious, they have a tool, it's a worksheet, where they look at the event, they identify what they're feeling and thinking, and then they go, suddenly I realize I was anxious, and they choose a tool. So if they're thinking 
as I said, pervasive pessimistic thinking, everything's bad, they'll choose total view. But not only does it help them actually realize this is what I'm thinking and here's the tool for it, but I've put it in a manual. And neurobiology says it takes 90 days to change a thought. And in the manual, the idea is doing a worksheet a day and over 90 days, people then rewire their brains. So it's a combination of CBT and neurobiology in a structured way that people eventually, after 90 days, they actually automatically start believing this will pass. So this is what I find has been a problem, that it's not enough just to understand what you're thinking and it's not enough to just know what you should be thinking. Unless you actually actively practice it, you're not going to change. I completely agree. So you have 22 different cognitive and behavioral tools to help individuals and teens. So can you give us some examples of those tools? Okay, so I've given you six already. With each of those thoughts, there's an alternate thought. There are more really, but in my worksheet, I have 10. So the other ones are, for example, the most popular tool for anxiety is I put it on a ruler. And the idea is you put it in perspective. Now, putting it in perspective doesn't mean how big is the problem because people try and do that. They go, don't sweat the small stuff and it's not really a big problem. It doesn't really help when it's you've lost your job or you struggling with something. So the question that I ask people is, is your life in danger? Because we need fight or flight if your life is in danger. It's not how big the problem is. So you can have a huge problem. You can lose your job or get divorced or be fighting with your daughter. And these are difficult problems. But is your life in danger? And if it isn't, then you tell your brain, I don't need fight or flight. In fact, I need to calm my brain so I can problem solve better. So that's one of my tools. And I give people a little ruler. And it's a reminder. I say stick it on your fridge to remind yourself. There are actually two ways of looking at things. Is your life in danger or not? And if it's not in danger, it doesn't matter how big the problem is. And we all know this intuitively. I have to just add this. It's like, you know, when you're worried about your electricity bill, like our electricity bills here are going out of control. And you're really worried about how I'm going to pay this electricity bill or cut down. You really are. And it's consuming you. And then you hear that your friend's daughter's got leukemia. The first thing you will go is, why was I worried about the electricity bill? Mm-hmm. that's a real problem. We intuitively mm-hmm. know that life and death is different to everyday problems. Mm-hmm. So that's what that tool is. I'll give you another very popular tool. I call it learning experience. And this is where we go. Everything that happens to me is an opportunity to grow. And I find this helps parents a lot. It's helped me a lot. And then we'll talk about teenage daughters. You have a teenage daughter and she challenges you, right? There's drama. There's arguments, there's pushing, there's opposition, there's competition. And you actually go, this is a learning experience for me. Some people have the philosophy, everyone in your life is a teacher. What do I need to learn? I need to learn not how not to be angry. or I need to learn how to respect someone. This is what I think is a huge one. Actually, it's for me. Who's different to me? They're not going to do it my way. It's my growth to go maybe the other ways of doing things in the world. doesn't have to be my way. And the minute you look at how you're growing in terms of yourself, then no longer is it a problem and no longer you're a victim. It's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of cognitive tools. Then I have, thank you. This isn't part of CBT, but I've added it in. I call it soothing emotions. And those are things like forgiveness, compassion, kindness. So forgiveness is a big one. Forgiveness is not rational. Somebody does something to us. You know, our daughter 
stole some money out of our purse. And it's not rational. Actually, we found it in our hearts to forgive. So that's another tool that sometimes people can use their hearts to let go of stuff and calm themselves down and be less anxious. Then they're behavioral tools. So, for example, with anxieties, I deal with a lot of teenagers who are anxious about school and studying, social problems. So these are behavioral tools. There'll be things like breaking things into parts, or there'll be things like with social anxiety, we will have exposure ladders, you know, going out socially and slowly increasing your ability to be social. So those are behavioral tools. And then I have my fourth section is calming tools. So these are the kind of things everyone talks about, breathing, meditation, exercise, whatever works for you. Ever, I have to say, and this is where my little commercial break, unless you get people to do it regularly and build this into your life, nothing really changes. But anxiety is very treatable. If it's not comorbid with a lot of other things, one can actually really learn to change the brain in these ways. So I see a lot of girls in my practice who are struggling with anxiety around school and school pressure. How do you help the teens that come in who are really stressed about taking tests or just stressed about their grades? So when people come to me at this stage, a lot of them come because they've heard about my system. And what I explain to them is we're not necessarily going to tackle that as a minute incident. We're going to calm the brain by doing a worksheet every day and bringing into your life regular exercise, regular breathing, learning all these different. And then over the weeks, we learn these different tools. And one of the tools is doing the difficult. So if, for example, they've got exam stress, we would look at, is it performance anxiety? Is it overwhelm? What is it? That's in the behavioral side of things. But I do it very slowly. I don't, as I say, okay, let's deal with this directly because it's a whole brain situation if your brain is firing it's very hard to fix that one problem so what I find normally after four sessions as they calm then we can start tackling their individual issues so you start with giving them some calming tools first yes if we do the manual in the first session I ask them to breathe every day start with that and exercise regularly that's actually the first few things that we do and then they're accountable when they come in. I have a diary and we check if they have. And if they haven't, part of being a psychologist is to find out why aren't you doing it and how can I help you do it? Mm -hmm. People don't always instantly change. So that's a basic, but it's building it into their everyday lives that makes a difference. So what do you tell the teens when they say, I don't like to exercise? So I don't argue. <laughs> that's one of the things I learned from my teenage daughters. <laughs> I'll go, that's fine. We'll find something and I'll leave it off and I'll leave that. and go, that doesn't matter. I'll just encourage whatever they are doing. And I'll explain it's collaborative and it's their process. And sometimes, you know, we'll do something else. A big part of anxiety, I have to say this, is that the more people understand what anxiety is and the less frightening it is, the more empowered they are to manage their anxiety. That's why anxiety is very treatable. So when people are scared of panic attacks and they understand what they are and they're no longer scared, often panic attacks just go away. So these are the kind of things we'll talk about. If, if they don't like the manual, they don't want to exercise, we'll do other things. But a big part is to take away the fear of anxiety. Because anxiety feels so uncomfortable mm -hmm. and it can be very debilitating. I find most people, when they understand the brain and they understand how much power they have, 
so much power, right, to actually manage their own brain, that is the first step to managing anxiety. So how do you define anxiety and panic attacks to teens? I explain it as the brain starts to fire. There's often a trigger. And the trigger often isn't today. The trigger often is when they're much younger. And what happens is a neural network gets established. So let's say they were scared of something when they were young. Often you can't work it out. And I'm not an analyst anymore. I don't spend hours trying to work it out. But sometimes they'll know. When I went to school, I was bullied or something happened and then I started not sleep. Okay, let's say that was the beginning. And then you were five and now you're 15. So for 10 years, your brain has been firing in a particular way. And now, even if you're having a good day, because this is what people often say, I don't know why I'm anxious. Actually, I'm having a good day or my life is okay. But it's because that neural network has been entrenched. And so I explain that to them and how the brain is firing and how it's important to calm the brain before we can even start solving problems. And I have to be honest that teenagers love this approach. So do men. I'm probably going to be shot for being politically incorrect. (laughs) But I find men and CEOs of companies, because it's structured, it's factual, they've got something to do. I find that a lot of teenagers don't like to talk just about their feelings. You know, they think it's mumbo jumbo or they feel vulnerable. So they like to come in and have tasks to do and they see the benefits quite quickly. So I use the brain a lot to explain it and I use their power to change. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk to them a lot about that. You're not a victim of a medical condition. Yeah, no, that's good. So when you said the question about is this life-threatening and then that kind of helped them calm down, like, no, it's not. I found the same thing with panic attacks. And I think research has shown just telling the teens that you're not going to die from a panic attack. It feels really, really bad. But if you tell yourself, I'm not going to die from this, this is just a really, really bad feeling that that really helps them. And I've seen like dramatic changes with my teens because of that. That's right. You know, I had a CBT therapist who once worked for me. She was a pure CBT therapist. I could never do this, but what she would do is she would stimulate. So either she would do it, start breathing very, very fast. You could hear it in my office. And she would work herself up and set it off. Or she would spin the teenager around in a chair until they felt dizzy. And she was saying, these are just symptoms that you can simulate yourself. You can make them happen or not. And just to see them as symptoms or things that are not to be afraid of and how to ride them. Because what has happened, and this is why I think I wrote my book. As an OT, I was originally in medical school and medically trained. And in Australia, we have a system where people get a Medicare rebate if a GP gives a referral. And the GP has to have a, give a diagnosis for there to be a referral. And most people want a rebate. So we live in a very medical model where it's all about you have a diagnosis and you need a treatment and so on. And so when people are told they have anxiety, they immediately think, well, now I've got a mental illness and I've got to have treatment and they're thinking about medication. And it's not always the case. I'm not anti-medication in a blanket way. But I do want to clarify, but pure anxiety and panic attacks First of all, anxiety medication doesn't work that well. It's not like an antidepressant for certain people. But actually, it's not a medical condition in the same way. It's something that's very, very treatable. 
And it's also something that we all have to learn to manage. We all get anxious at times. Mm-hmm. I and agree it's part with of you. the human condition. Yeah, I agree. Just to normalize anxiety because I know I have anxiety. I think every human does. That's right. When I get my electricity bill, <laughs> there'll be some anxiety there. <laughs> yes. So I know you talk about burnout. So how do you address the issue of burnout with teens? And what strategies do you recommend? Or even mothers? So burnout has become my new sort of topic that I want to talk about because there's a difference between stress, anxiety, and burnout. And people sort of use them interchangeably. Stress, we know that for some people, stress is a good thing. And they say everyone needs a certain amount of stress to write exams or to run a home. It keeps us going. And it's only when stress has a tipping point where you actually are overwhelmed and you feel you can't cope that it's a problem. Anxiety is when you now have all these physiological responses and ruminating thoughts that are interfering with your function and are very uncomfortable. When people reach burnout, actually, there's very little you can do. I work with people in organizations. They have to take a month off or more to actually recuperate. You need a complete break. And so the idea is to prevent burnout. So if people are not already burnt out, but I see they're heading that way, I will talk about how serious it is and what to do to prevent burnout. Now, the World Health Organization in 2019 actually has said that burnout, stop blaming the individual for burnout. And I think it's fantastic. It's actually the fault of organizations, the culture and the structure of organizations. So when moms are burnt out, I always need to look at, and it's very tough for moms, the running homes and often working and coping with children. We need to, your assistance therapists, change the system. Mm-hmm. It's not enough just dealing with the symptoms. We need to make some structural and cultural changes. And that can be difficult. With anxiety, you can treat symptoms and they go back to the same system. So with children as well, teenagers as well, what are the structures that they keep going back into? How are they living their lives that is reaching the point that they are burning out? And these are big questions and difficult questions. So, for example, I deal with certain groups where there's a popular term, and I'm not picking on anyone, but everyone knows it as the tiger mom. Mm-hmm. So if you have a tiger mom and that mom is expecting you, you know, to do homework as a teenager for hours and hoping you to get the highest mark when you finish school, that has to change because this child, no matter how much breathing they do, it's not going to help them. So these are difficult questions. What structurally is contributing? And I'm glad we've gone back to that. It's not just the individual and it's not just pathology. We need to look at our structures and our cultures. In my book, Dial Down the Drama, I started with talking about powerless parenting messages that come from our culture. And one of them is that moms are supposed to get everything right so that the message of perfectionism is another one of those things that leads to stress and anxiety and burnout because we can't do things perfectly. And so, yes, it's a powerless parenting messages because it leads you straight to being powerless. That's true. That's really true. Often people feel they can't change things. And again, it's looking at, is it because of their belief system? Is it because they often can't? But I actually believe that people can find solutions, and they do. Once they're aware that I need to change something, 
then their mind sort of opens up to doing things differently. Can you discuss the role of self-esteem in managing anxiety and how individuals can work to improve their self-esteem? My first book called You Can't Push My Buttons, I dealt mainly with just the CBT part of helping parents manage their anger by changing their thoughts. And again, the same thing would apply to anybody. Teenagers can use those same things. But then I realized that a whole big chunk was missing because, again, there's much more than just what you think. There's also the behaviors that one needs to learn to change, all the things we're talking about. But anxiety, I also found, is linked to not having self-efficacy in the world. When you feel powerless, to use your word, the world is a very scary place. And so although I've used the word self-esteem, it's self-efficacy, it's self-worth, it's feeling that you have a part in the world. So the simplest way I can explain it is, I'll often say, what is the difference between someone who's resilient and someone who says they're anxious? And one of the big differences is, if you ask a resilient person, oh, do you think the world is perfect? They'll often say no. Do you think everything's going to work out for you? Like, of course not. I know things are going to be tough. But the difference is the resilient person goes, but I will deal with it. I have the inner resources that whatever comes my way, I will deal with it. And sometimes there are things like I've got courage or conviction or diligence, but also resource. I'll come for help. I'll know what I need to do. When a person feels powerless or they don't believe in themselves, they're scared of what's going to happen because how will I cope? And I'll give you an example. I once had a teenage girl and I noticed after a few sessions she wasn't changing and when people don't change I know they're holding on to their anxiety for some reason it's serving them in some way and so we try and work with what is that what is not shifting you and she said you know my life has been so hard until now broken family and various things that I don't want God to think I can cope with anymore so if I stay anxious she used to talk to God. She, then you say, look, can you see I'm already not coping? So that's very much a powerless feeling of my anxiety. I can't cope with what's going on. So finding your power or believing you have worth and meaning or believing you have skills is a big part of being less anxious to face what needs to be faced. That makes sense. So do you have any last advice for the moms listening? My advice is not to get fixed to the little details of parenting. Why is my daughter not unloading the dishwasher? This is what people ask me. And this is how people Google. How do I get my daughter to load the dishwasher? I'll give a talk and I'll go, I don't know. I don't know you. I don't know your personality. I don't know your daughter's personality. I don't know how your house runs. I don't know your clarity, your vision. It's not a simple thing. So what I encourage mums, and I do this to teenagers as well, although they don't always have that, is Think of it in a big way. What are your big views? What are you trying to achieve? And what are the best ways of achieving it? And sometimes it's about clarifying exactly what you're saying, having a mission statement and not being afraid about challenges. Everything is a learning. That when we actually meet challenges, whether it's overcoming anxiety or overcoming anger, for teenagers trying a test and failing, the courage we get or the fortitude we get is actually much more valuable than the mark that we get. And the same thing, the relationship we achieve with our daughters is much more important than their marks at school. It's seeing the bigger picture and focusing on what you can do to be a better person and what you can do to help them be better in the world. 
I love that. So if a mom is interested in any of your books or wants to get in contact with you, how can they do that? My website, it's called anxietysolutionscbt.com. Okay, great. All right. Thank you, Colleen. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Pleasure. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning, best-selling books, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, and that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.